0: Um, My dad is Chuck Smith, and some of you have been wondering what his status is and how he's doing. He is recovering incredibly for an 82-year-old man. And that is the thing, though, that you have to keep in mind. He's 82. And if this stroke had hit him at 72, we'd have a whole different synopsis. But he's 82. And so he needs lots of rest, no stress, which means I only visit intermittently. Actually, you know, it's really funny. My mom hasn't been driving for about 10 years. And she says, we're sitting there, and she says, that's it. I'm getting my license, check. I'm going to drive you around. And he put his hand out, and he says, baby, they said no stress. <laughs> so as humor is up, he's, he's doing really well. The hardest thing right now is to keep him down. That is the hardest thing, to say, Daddy, please recover. I told him the other day, Dad, we're building a wall. Let's not take any bricks out yet. Let's just keep building the wall. So he is recovering. He's at home. He can be heard Monday through Thursday on Pastor's Perspective. And it's wonderful for us as family to kind of have him to ourselves just a little bit. You know, we've shared him for a lot of years. And we really want to kind of keep him to ourselves. He's a little off balance um, when he stands. He's got a right leg that has his knee is bone on bone. And his left side is weak and doesn't have the strength. So people keep rushing up to hug him. And I see him, like, get ready for the hug, you know. And he's going like this, and he's teetering a little bit. So we've asked, please, don't hug him. You know, emails are great, but he really needs this time just kind of to pull away. Like Moses, 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain, right? So... That's the status he is recovering. We continue to pray for his recovery, that he has many more years to share and to bless us. But you know, one something: he's had all these books on his heart for years, but never had the time to do it. And uh, so we're really excited that he is now at home, stuck and having to write. And the one he's working on right now is called "Questions Children Ask." And I think it's going to be great. And it's interesting because I do pastor's prospectus sometimes on Friday. And I said, Dad, I've got a great question for you. He says, what is it? And I said, well, Dad, this kid called us up the other day. He's eight years old. And he said, since Eve messed up Adam, don't you think it's a good idea for all guys to stay away from girls? (laughs) So, Brian wisely asked him, does your brother have a girlfriend? He was like, how did you know? <laughs> Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for this assembly of people. I thank you that you know them, you know their name, you know their background, you know they're sitting down and they're rising up, you're acquainted with all their ways. Lord, that there's not a word on their tongue, but you know it all together. Lord, you know the very needs here. Lord, not only the personal needs that each one in this room has, but you know their aspirations and what they want to be for you and what they want to do for you. Lord, I pray that you would minister to each one in that way that you have, Lord, that deep, eternal, lasting, loving, gracious way that you have, that you would minister this morning by your Spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, the Bible has a lot to say about leadership. And I love the way the Bible communicates leadership. It, it does it in all the ways that we need it communicated. It teaches us about leadership. It imparts to us leadership. And it give us, gives us examples of good and bad leaders, doesn't it? And every good leader is known or distinct by this. He's under the authority of of God. The other day we had a woman and she called Pastor's perspective and she said, I'm a leader and nobody wants to follow me. Where am I supposed to get my authority? And I said, Well, it's not by your position, is it? And it's not by your definition of what a leader is. Our authority comes from God. In Matthew chapter 8, a centurion asked Jesus to come to his house. He said, My servant is sick. Could you come? And then while Jesus was en route, he sent a message to Jesus and said, You know what? You don't have to come to my house. You only need to say the word, and I know it will be done. Because like you, I'm a man under authority. And I say to one servant, Go, and he goes, and to another, Come, and he comes. He was a man under authority, and under his authority, he had authority. Jesus modeled that picture for us, he was under the authority of God. He said, I always do those things that please my Father. In John, he speaks about never, ever working independently of his Father. He was always under the authority of his Father. Now, big kings, or good kings, are measured whether or not they were under the authority of God. The good kings were. They were under his authority. They would listen to God like Moses. They would hear from God, and they would communicate to others what God wanted to say. That was their priority. What is God saying? What does God want? How does God want to deal with this situation? Remember when Moses went before the Pharaoh and... The Pharaoh refused him, the first visit, and, you know, forget it. It's not going to happen. He goes out from the presence of the Lord. The Pharaoh makes the task harder on the people. The people come to Moses, and they said, you know what? What are you doing? You've made our life even more burdensome. What did Moses do? He went to God. He sought God's authority. You see Deborah in Judges. She's a woman who heard the word of the Lord under the authority of God, and she went and she communicated it to Barak. Just as it came to her, she communicated. She was under the authority of God. And under that authority, she heard from God and she communicated it to Barak. We could continue to talk about other good leaders. We could talk about David. We could talk about Samuel. But the distinction was, they were under the authority of God. Now, the bad kings, the bad leaders in the Bible, and they are as numerous as the good ones, aren't they? I mean, you consider the king of Israel. Not one good king of the divided kingdom of Israel. Not one good king. In fact, they were a murderous lot, weren't they? Succession usually came by murder. What a way to ascend to the throne. I'm here to kill you and take your place. It's that simple. You probably experienced that a little bit in leadership. But you know what made those kings distinct as not good leaders? It was when they thought they could lean on their own authority, their own advice. You see this modeled for us in 1 Kings. I believe it's chapter 8, might be chapter 12. But what you have is you have Rehoboam. I have to check. I cannot do that to myself. In chapter 12, I'm under authority again. In chapter 12, you have Rehoboam. He's the king. He's Solomon's son. He is heir to a vast kingdom, to vast riches. But the people come to him and they said, look, your father burdened us. It was so hard. We had to build the temple. We had to build his palaces. We had to build his stables. The burden was hard. The taxation was hard. These projects are done. They're over. Could you alleviate the burden just a bit from us? And Rehoboam went to his counselors. We don't see Rehoboam praying or asking advice from the Lord. Instead, he goes to his counselors. He goes to the old counselors. The old counselors said, the people are right. It has been burdensome. Lift the burden from the people. Obviously, he didn't like that advice because he went to the young counselors. And the young counselors said, oh, my goodness. Forget those people. Tell you what. You go back to them and you tell them that your pinky is going to be heavier on them than your father's hold hand. You tell them that whereas your father scourged them with whips, you're going to use scorpions. You go, you intimidate them. That's how you get the authority. You go intimidate the people. And Rehoboam did not seek the counsel of the Lord. He went in and he said to the people exactly what the young counselors had told him. You know, not only did these people rebel, not only did they say, forget it, but they also resented him. See, the old counselors had said to Rehoboam, if you will listen to this people and you will serve them, they will be yours forever. But if you ignore them, they will rebel. And that's exactly what they did. You see, a good leader must feel what others feel. Rehoboam was separated because he was in the kingdom and he didn't feel what the people felt. There's a danger When a king or a leader makes himself exempt from what he is requiring others to do. You remember that the time that David, King David, got in trouble was the time that he did not go out to war with the people. He stayed back in the palace and he got in trouble. When we make ourselves an exemption to the rule, this is for others but not for me, we have got problems. We cease to feel When we require others to do what we will not do, that is wrong. We cannot afford that, and that's what Rehoboam did. He was saying, you pay taxes, I don't have to pay taxes. You give from your substance, I don't have to give from my substance. I'm not giving up a thing to facilitate you. And he couldn't feel, and he couldn't sense. And he didn't seek the advice of the Lord. He thought that his wisdom was enough. He thought his position was authority enough. But you see, our authority must come from God. Do you have authority as a leader? I don't know. Does God answer your prayer? That's when you know whether you have authority or not. Does God answer your prayer? Do you have an audience with God? Moses' authority was that he met with God on a daily basis. I love the way that when Moses went to the tabernacle, the cloud of the glory and the personage of God descended on the tabernacle. And God would meet with Moses at the tabernacle door. Does God meet with you? If God meets with you every morning, then you've got authority. If you hear the voice of God and you communicate that to others, you've got authority. If your prayers are answered, you've got authority. And that's the distinction. You are under the authority of God. And under His authority, under His word, under His leading, you have authority. As I was saying, the lady on pastor's perspective. She wanted authority from her position. She wanted others to give her authority. See, your authority doesn't even come from people or how many people are under you. It doesn't matter if you're the boss and you have 20 employees. If you don't have the authority of God, you are not a leader, and you have no authority. You must seek your authority from God. That's where it starts with a leader. A leader must be Seek his authority from God. Now, as you know, to have authority with God, you've got to be obedient to God, don't you? Not only do you have to listen, but you have to do what he says. Because those who listen, but do not heed it. You know, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, they're like that house that is taken away by the storms. Now, the goal of leadership, let's talk about the goal of leadership. Okay, first of all, a leader must have a right relationship with the Lord, right? That's what it comes down to, to be under the authority of God. When a problem comes, that leader needs to take it to God. I love what Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, says to him in Exodus. He says to him, Moses, you are to hear the people and take their difficulties to God. Again, going back to the authority, we don't have the means by which to meet every problem. We don't have the resources to meet every problem. You know, as a pastor's wife, I feel like that is the hardest thing. I have asked God to give me millions of dollars so I can give it away to others. Instead, God likes to strap me and say, you be rich in faith. You be rich in faith. The Lord said to me the other day, Cheryl, because he has to get my attention, Cheryl, what if Peter and John had had silver and gold? What would have happened to the lame man at the gate beautiful? He would have been begging the next day, and the next day, and the next day. He wouldn't have received the power to walk. Cheryl, you can have silver and gold, or you can have my authority and my power. People come to me, And they're pouring out their problems. One, I'm a terrible counselor, so I know not to open my mouth. Two, I don't have any power. I don't have any resources. So what I do is I take their difficulties to God. I pray with them, and then I stand back and I say, we're both going to see what the Lord does. I prayed for a woman last Wednesday. She came up, oh, my goodness, what a problem she had. Even while she was telling me, I was going, Oh, Lord, this poor little lamb, this poor little lamb. But I was acting like, you know, God's going to meet you. But inside I'm going, Oh, God, please meet her, please meet her. This poor little lamb. And sometimes, you know, as a pastor's life, you're kind of afraid to see those people two days later. <laughs> you're kind of like Darius with Daniel. Did the Lord that you continually serve save you from the lion's mouth? And I saw her just this Wednesday night. I ran into her, otherwise I would have ditched her, I promise you. And I looked at her and I said, how are you doing? And she said, Cheryl, every prayer was answered. Everything that we prayed was done. I am doing so well. And I went, woo, praise God. <laughs> Because I know it's not me. But you see, the Lord wants to meet these people, but we've got to take those difficulties to God. We can't lean on our own understanding. We can't try to bring our own resources to bear. We've got to be under the authority of God. Under the authority of God, we've got the resources. Not silver and gold, but Jesus of Nazareth. That's the authority. That's the power. That's the name that we bring forth. I could go on and on to talk about the leader, because you know what? You can't... You can't lead unless you're a good leader, unless you're under the authority. And there's so much to say. But you get it? So let's move on to the goal of a leader. The goal of a leader. A leader must be followed. There you go. A leader must lead. I love Deborah's song. When she said, When leaders lead, the people offer themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. You see, when leaders lead, when they're doing what they're supposed to do when they're under the authority of God, people will offer themselves willingly. Years ago when my son was five years old, I remember he went running out onto the field. It was the third day of kindergarten. And he turned around to his class and he said, Everybody follow me! And nobody followed him. Then he put his hands on his hips and said, then I'll just follow myself. That's how so many leaders are. They've forgotten the goal. The goal is to lead others. Now, how do we lead? How do we lead? Because that's the goal, to lead. We need to lead them on the how, how to walk with the Lord. We need them... We need to lead them on the when to walk to the Lord. We need to lead them on the where's. We need to lead. Paul said in Philippians 4, 9, the things that you have learned, received, heard, and seen in me, do. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul could say everything that I've taught you, everything that I've given you, everything that I've said to you, and the way I have lived my life, you can follow. You can follow. You see, we have to lead with our whole life. You know, some people, they want to be leaders, but they want to keep 70% of their life in the dark. Like, what are you doing knocking on my door? We're looking for leadership. Where have you gone? I remember a woman in um, one of the churches that Brian pastored. And she came to me. She was beautiful. And she was like, I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader. I want to be a leader. I said, okay, be a leader. Okay. What do I do? I said, you're a leader. Magic dust. You're there. I said, you lead women. How do I lead them? I said, by example, by teaching. Look at Philippians nine. She said, okay. She started a Bible study at her house. She started an exercise class. She started singing with the music group. And then she fell into sin. And she was so angry that those women were talking about her. Those women were seeking her out. She wanted to be left alone. So one day she called me up and said, can you come over to my house and talk to me? I said yes she came over and all she could do was complain about all the women that used to follow her and i said excuse me i remember the day that you came to me and said i want to be a leader i want to be a leader i said you forgot this important principle he said she said what i said leaders are heard and seen you don't want to be watched i said those people are knocking on your door you've said Watch me do what I do. And then you turned around and you hid in the closet and said, I don't want you to know what I'm doing, and I don't want you to see me. Mm -mm. It doesn't work. Paul said what you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard, and what you've seen. So let's talk about these four things. Paul, first of all, said what you have learned. A leader must give. Clear directives. Clear directives. Everyone says to me, how do you always get exactly what you want for your birthday and for Christmas from your husband? I give clear directives. I give post-it notes. I make it so clear that man cannot fail. I even tell him the name of the sales lady he needs to go see. I make it so clear a few times since he not quite followed the clear directives, but now he knows better. <laughs> but you know, we must give clear directives. I have known of leaders who are so arbitrary, and they don't give clear directives because they want to retain power. And if they keep the people just a little off balance, they could say, well, you didn't quite do what I wanted. But a good leader gives clear directives. So the people can say, this is what I learned. This is what I wrote in my book. But some people don't give clear directives. They tell you to write a paper. Do you want a title page? Maybe. Do you want three paragraphs? Maybe. Do you want a bibliography? Hmm. You're just like going, what do I write? How do I write? They can't go forward because they don't Have clear directives. Paul said, what you have learned. Those clear directives that I have given you, do. The clear directives. Are you, as a leader, giving clear directives? When you walk in a bookstore, do you say, order books? Books. Order. Are you giving clear directives? Are you saying, don't order the Twilight series? Are you giving good directives? Give clear directives. Tell them who they are. Who they are. We are the bookstore of integrity. We are the bookstore of grace. Do you hear me? Who are we? Integrity. Yes. You see, part of that is do they know who they are? Are they learning? Are there clear directives? Is there a clear definition Those who follow Paul, they knew. We are apostles. We are sent out by Jesus Christ and we are the bond slaves of God. Are there clear directives, a clear identity? You know, and, and that is really, do they know? Do they know? My kids were obedient because I gave them clear directives. I made it so crystal clear. My one daughter shaved her head. I told the other daughter, you shave your head, you die. She never shaved her head. I learned what clear directives to give after a while. It was trial and error. Clear directives, what you have learned. What you have learned. I have a friend who's a teacher, and I said to her, "What?" I'm sorry, she's a principal. She hires teachers. I said, what makes for the best teachers? And she said, Cheryl, it's people who love children. She said, they don't have to be smart. They don't have to love the material. And they don't have to love their job. She said, people who love being a teacher, she said, they'll be arbitrary and they're there for self-fulfillment. And they make some of the worst teachers because the kids are there to facilitate them. People who love the materials will teach the materials and not care if anyone's catching on to it. But somebody who loves the children, they will make sure that the information is accessible to the children. She said if the teacher doesn't think they're very smart, they're even better. She said because they want to take that material and simplify it so that the children can digest it, so they can be enriched. Now as a leader we're teaching, but are we giving those clear directives that they can digest that they can understand Do we love the material? Do we love what we're doing and the you know the, the job description are we do we love the people that will buy the books and the people that are under us do we want to see them edified built up? why are we in this? So he says, what you have learned. Next, he said, what you have received. Leaders must impart. Second 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul says, the things that you have heard from me, commit these things to others, who will then commit them to others, who will teach others also. You see, the best leaders commit and entrust. You know, if you're retaining all the power, nobody's learning. Jesus Gave his disciples power in Matthew chapter 10, and then he sent them out. He gave them, he imparted to them his power so they could understand, so they could feel, so they could see. You must impart power. You must give it away. You can't do everything, and they need to learn by trial and error. They have to do it themselves. So you must give it away. You have to give power away. I had a woman come to me and she said, Cheryl, I have this vision for this wonderful, you know, children's ministry with moms and she she had it all laid out. And she she tried to give it to me, and I said, I don't want that. I think that's fabulous. I think it's fantastic. But I didn't get that burden, I didn't receive that from the Lord. You did. And she said, What does that mean? It says It means welcome to the club, I will facilitate you, I'll find you a room, I'll put you in the bulletin. She just looked at me like, could I pray about it? I said, sure. But you and I know the answer. That ministry was fabulous. Because I didn't have to do anything but just show up. She was gifted. She was anointed. She had the vision. You see, you have to impart. When you impart, when you give it away, you know what you get? You get creativity. You get creativity. You you get comprehensive understanding. You see, because whether I want to admit it or not, I only think like Cheryl. But you think like you. And when we come together, we get a comprehensive vision. We get something that's fuller and greater and will reach more people. If I only go with what Cheryl envisions and Cheryl sees, I'm only going to attract Cheryl's, and only Cheryl's will follow me. You know, it's so funny when I when I was in Vista, people, uh, you know, women would talk and they go, "Do you go to Cheryl's Bible studies?" And they're like, "How did you know?" Because you talk like her. <laughs> I didn't realize I had a special way to talk. But you know, I was attracting Cheryl's but when you impart and when you give away you get more people you get a comprehensive vision we need to impart we need to give away now giving away that is impartation that means part of you is being given away your control and you know what it means that guess what here's the hard part there might be mistakes they might not do it perfectly And certainly, they're not going to do it like you did. But you know what? That's okay. Because this is where grace comes in. Grace is the atmosphere that people don't have to get it exactly right. Don't you love that? Are you under grace? Then don't you think you should give grace out? Yes. Good. We need to give that grace. I know that people come to me trembling, going, I'm in charge of the centerpieces. What do you want? And I say, what do you want? I don't know. You know, the minute they told me I had to ask you, I lost my brain. I, have, I say to them, you're under grace. You can't make a mistake. I like everything, which isn't true. I like almost everything. Bring it to me. Let me see. And when they bring it to me, I say, this is fabulous. This is great. Because, you see, we need to impart grace when we impart power, the grace to fail, the atmosphere. Because you know what? Your greatest lessons came through your failures, didn't they? I mean, really, to tell you the truth, I didn't learn anything from my successes. I make something that's wonderful when I cook. Sometimes brother will go, remember this recipe. And I'll go, okay. And I'll go, what did I put in it? My kids say no dish ever tastes the same. You see, we've got to impart that grace and take away the fear and allow them to fail because that's how you learn. You'll learn through failure. You have to have the grace. And you as a leader have to remember this principle. All things, without exemption, without exception, work together for the good of them that love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. You go back to the call. Am I under the authority of God? Then this, even this mistake, it's going to work out. God's got something in this. This is His way, not my way. And God's going to work through this, and He's going to do a miracle. You know what I always realize? God loves to work through deficiency, doesn't He? When He first comes to the world, we find out that it's dark, it's without form and void. And He bara, He creates out of nothing. He calls light out of darkness. Do darkness have any light to give? No. And yet God was able to call the light out of darkness. He allowed the people, the Exodus. Can you tell I've been in Exodus? He allowed them to be bunched in, mountains on each side, the Red Sea in front. He created a deficit of protection, a deficit of insulation, that he might open up the Red Sea and do a greater work. When they crossed over on the other side, he created a deficit, thirst. He allowed them to thirst. For three days they thirsted. Can you imagine being thirsty for three days? The desperation. But he allowed that so he could bring water out of a rock. He allowed them to hunger so that he could bring them quail and manna from heaven. God will allow deficits for the greater work. We have that demonstrated for us in John chapter 11. He let Lazarus die. He delayed his coming for the greater work. But you see, unless you are under the authority of God, you cannot impart grace. You will be so hard on them when they fail, and they will be afraid, and they will never reach their potential. You must give an atmosphere of grace. And encouragement must follow grace. You see, this is a team effort. I love it when Jesus teaches in Luke, it says that he came and stood on level ground. That's what the incarnation was. Jesus came and he stood on level ground with all of us. And from this vantage point of being on the same ground, same level with us, he taught us, he imparted. And that's what leaders must do. It must be level ground. We must give grace and follow that grace with encouragement. I played um, team sports in high school and college. And one of the things was when... Somebody would miss a shot. It was volleyball, mainly and basketball. Somebody would miss a shot. You know what you did? You said, you idiot. No. You said, where did you learn to shoot? No. You said, good effort. Thank you for trying. Good effort. You see, we need to be able to say, good effort. At least you tried. You know, Peter denied the Lord three times. Remember John chapter 21? And what did Jesus say? It's a good effort. You meant to do it, Peter. Do you love me? Let's get back to essentials. And you know what that was? That was an impartation, wasn't it? Because every time he asked Peter, do you love me? What did he follow it up with? Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. It was leadership being imparted through grace and encouragement. So, received. Next, heard. It's not only what you say and teach when you're having those teaching moments. I homeschooled for uh, three years. I was a failure, so Uh, actually, I think I did really well because I made them learn, but they think that made them failures. But I remember, you know, you would go, oh, this is a teaching moment. You know, you just have those moments where everything opens up and suddenly they're looking at you and you can tell they're listening. Something's turned on that was off before. And you think, this, this, here it is. It's a teaching moment. And you begin to teach, right? You tell them things and you say, this is what you do, this is how you do it, and it's it's just this wonderful time. But you see, we're teaching, not only when we're speaking forth, but you see, we're teaching with our words. When they're hearing our conversations. How are you talking to others? What is the tone in your voice? Is it condescending? Is it gracious? I, I love the fact that they marveled at Jesus' words. The gracious words he spoke. You see, what are they hearing? Because they're hearing not only what the words, but they're hearing the tone of the words. They're hearing the address of the words. What are they hearing? What are they hearing? If you are speaking graciously, they're hearing the grace of God. If you are speaking lovingly, they're hearing the love of God. We need to take heed how we speak. Paul said, let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt. Are they pure words? Are they imparting words? Are they good words? Paul also said, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth. That's not bad language. That's things that, that, those are words that make people feel like perhaps they're not worthy of the grace of God. Perhaps they don't belong in leadership. Perhaps God doesn't have a place for them. Are we doing corrupt words? Or are our words gracious words? Pure words? What are they? hearing not just what we're saying but what are they hearing you know years ago my oh, char he's my best example he was my wild one he's now a pastor see it worked but i remember he was eight years old and i had a new baby and i had a two-year-old and i had him and i had his older sister and this one day i was uh, had all these friends over and we were in the backyard and I asked him to do something and he answered me really belligerently in front of all the women that were in the ministries, the leadership with me. And I thought, you know, this looks really bad because I'm supposed to have my children under control. And no matter what I said to him, he answered me so belligerently. So I thought I'd set an example. So I went in and I grabbed a wooden spoon and I came out to the backyard. Now there's all the women in my leadership and they're watching. And I chased that little 8-year-old all around the backyard. I'm not kidding. It was like 20 minutes of chasing him. He's fast. Finally, I tackled him in the backyard. And I took the wooden spoon and I hit him and the wooden spoon broke in half. So very calmly, because I'm trying to demonstrate calm discipline, I walked back into my kitchen and I grabbed another spoon. And he came in By this time, the women have their heads down, and they're sneaking out the front door of my house. I saw them. He says to me, haven't you had enough yet? How much do you want to do? How many kids do you want to beat today? And I just held the spoon in my hand, and I said, go to your room. Go to your room. He said, no. I said, stay here. I'm going to my room. And I went into the living room, and I was so mad. And I began to tell the Lord about that little 8-year-old rebel that I had in my house. Brian, of course, was gone. He was gone a lot. This was one of those moments. And the Lord said, I want to talk to you about the rebel mother in your living room right now. I want to talk to you about the tone of voice that you're using with my son, with my child. I am so upset with you, Cheryl, right now. And the Lord let me hear like a tape recorder. I began to weep for that poor little boy that was up there that got stuck with a mother like me. What a shrew for a mother. No wonder he was talking belligerently. I couldn't believe it. I heard me. That little boy snuck down the stairs. He came over and he sat in front of me with his arms crossed. He said, are you praying for me? I said, yes. Mm-hmm. What does God say? He says I've been a naughty mother. Really? Yeah. He says that he loves you so much, and I haven't been talking very nicely to you, and you're his special treasure. And he told, he told me, I have to tell you I'm sorry, that this isn't about you, it's about me. And I am so sorry because you haven't heard a word I've said because of the way I've been talking to you. He goes, well, I'm just a stupid little kid. And I said, did I do that to you? Did I make you feel stupid? I am so sorry because you're a very intelligent, wonderful young man. You know, after that, my son heard me. He heard me. Because I spoke in love and he heard the love of Jesus. As I said, he's a pastor now. Four weeks ago, five weeks, six weeks, I don't know, time is relative. I got to go over and I got to sit in front in the front row of church while he preached. That was the goal, that was the dream of my heart. I sat on the front row and I prayed to God that I wouldn't cry or embarrass him. That's what I prayed. And he got up and he he not only led worship, which was incredible, But he preached, and I sat there, and I watched him. And I was so blessed. I just suppressed all the tears and everything. And a woman came up to me afterwards and said, Your son is so dynamic. And I said, Yes, I know. I know. And I had to go take a walk. I had to go take a long walk. In fact, I took such a long walk that he called me and said, Where are you? And I said, I'm around the corner, I'm almost there. And I got back and he said, I said, Char, I just had to compose myself. I didn't want to embarrass you. He said, Mom, I'm open to criticism. I want to be the best pastor I possibly can be. I said, okay, then I've got a word of advice. Hear me on this. He said, okay. I said, stay humble so God can keep anointing you like that. He said, what else? Stay humble so God can keep filling you like that. Tar, you made no mistakes. You did it perfectly. It was awesome. But you've got to stay humble so God can keep filling you. You see, now He hears me. Now He hears me. Now I've got power. Now I've got authority. He was ready to hear because He knew. See, are they hearing you? How are you saying it? It's not only what you're saying, it's how you're saying it. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Our heart betrays us, doesn't it? That bitterness or that anger, whatever is in our heart, it's going to come out. You know, when I have bitter words come out, or if I have anger, you know what I know now? It's my heart problem. People don't make me react. People don't make me do things. Somebody pulling out in front of me and almost killing me, they are there to test me to see if my reward is in heaven. Will I bless? Will I, will I call them stupid idiot who needs to learn how to drive? Or will I say, Lord, that poor person needs perception? So again, learned, received, heard, and finally saw. It must be modeled. You must show them. 2 Timothy 2, which is one of the absolute leadership chapters, and I'll tell you the two most important leadership chapters you could ever read, John 13 and 2 Timothy chapter 2. They are it. Now, there's other lessons on leadership, but those are the best. Those, those are the, the apex of leadership. But Paul, in talking to Timothy, seeking to impart to him leadership, says to him, in verse 6, the hardworking farmer must be the first partakers of the crop. In other words, you have to first eat the fruit to show them it's edible. You have to live by the crop. You have to live by your words, by your lessons, by what you're saying. If you don't live by it, you have no authenticity. Without authenticity, you have no authority. They must see it. People learn more from watching. Most of us are watchers. We're not auditory learners. The majority of people are visual learners. We learn by watching. So you have got to show the example. As Paul said, show yourself. Paul said to Titus, show yourself. To be a pattern of good works. Those people that you've got to raise up, those older women, those younger women, those young men, those old men. You have to show them, Titus, what it's to look like. You have to show them. Show them. Model it. Because they're looking at you. You're not an exemption. I had a woman who was in leadership. And she didn't come to any of the Bible studies. And yet she was complaining about other women that didn't come to the leader, the Bible studies who weren't even in leadership. And I, she wrote to me and said, do you have a problem with me? And I said, yes. And I gave her that scripture, the hardworking farmer must be the first partaker of the crops. She wrote me back, I don't know what this means. I wrote her back and said, that's okay, God will show you. And when God shows you, you'll know what to do. You see, you must first have it, do it, and they can watch it. A leader must show them where to walk, how to walk, when to walk. The people could see Moses. He was visible. Jesus said in John chapter 13, I have given you an example that as I have done, you will do for each other. What had Jesus just done? He had washed all the disciples' feet, including Judas. He gave I've got authority and power now. (laughs) He had given them an example. He showed them what you just saw. Do that. That's what it looks like. When I tell you to be servants, this is what it looks like. Jesus lived with them among them for three years, and he showed them. Paul brought these men together. He showed them. When Jesus was choosing his disciples in Mark, it said he chose them that they might be with Him. Why? So that they might see Him. They might see Him. It starts with you. Now, I hope that you think, you know what, I want to resign from leadership. Because the leader that thinks they can do it, they're not going to do it. The one who says, I think you got the wrong person, you're the right person. The person that says, Lord, this is too much for me. I don't trust myself. You know, my new mantra, and I hate to use that word, The new phrase I repeat is this. Lord, I trust you more than I trust Cheryl. Lord, I trust you more than I trust Cheryl. Trust your ways more than I trust Cheryl's ways. I trust your wisdom more than I trust my wisdom. I trust your words a lot more than I trust my words. I trust you, Jesus, more than I trust me. So I want to be emptied of myself. And when you bring me to a place of self-crucifixion, I want to die there no matter what it takes. Because I trust you more than I trust Cheryl. In leadership, do not trust yourself. Do not lean to your own understanding. Get to the place of feeling deficit and inadequate. Because this is what Paul said Who is sufficient for these things? If you think you're sufficient for these things, you're not. But if you feel insufficient, guess what? You're going to run to the one who's sufficient for these things. If you don't have the silver and gold, you're going to call on the power of Jesus of Nazareth, aren't you? Who is sufficient? None of us. Run into the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Okay, that was a condensed version that was pretty mixed up of everything and some things I feel about leadership. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would not be afraid to be led to insufficiency, that we might find our sufficiency in You, that we would not be afraid of deficit or impartation and giving away of power because our power is in You. Lord, that we would not be afraid of deficit because our provision and all that we need is in You. Lord, may we be like You. May we trust You more than we trust ourselves that we might be able to teach and to speak and to show and to impart leadership to others, especially in these last days, Lord. Lord, that your Spirit might be poured out on a generation and not a remnant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.